Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we recognize that without your Holy Spirit in our hearts, we have no hope of not just understanding but applying your word into our lives. There is no hope for me to preach it faithfully. So we pray that you may truly have the Holy Spirit each and every one of us, that we may be able to concentrate, to stay awake, and to also see the great power and significance of what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, how many of you believe that in uh, September 11, 2001, uh, a group of terrorists flew some jet planes into the World Trade Center and destroyed it and brought it to the ground. I think that all of us do, isn't it? Is there anybody who doesn't? Uh, well, I, I presume all of us did do. But when you think about it, before it actually happened, it's quite a fantastical situation, right? Something that's almost out of a movie script. If I were to tell you what happened, uh, and uh, you didn't see anything, you didn't watch television, you haven't been reading newspaper, you don't see documentaries, you'd say that's that's something out of Hollywood. But why then do we believe that that really happened? Because it is something that's quite hard to believe. I remember when my mom called me up, I remember I was, you may remember where you were when you first heard that it happened. I remember I was sitting in the, the living room of my uh, flat in Woodlands and my mom called me up and when she said, oh, you know, someone flew the plane into the Twin Towers. And I actually thought she meant the Patronus Towers in KL, right? So I turned on the television and I looked at it and I thought, Hey, that doesn't look very real, isn't it? I was watching uh, Channel News Asia then. It doesn't look very real, but as you saw the pictures, as you heard the news reports, as you looked at the newspapers, you looked at the survivors, you thought, this is really true, this is really happening, this was real. And I think that as we turn to the book of Mark, chapter 15, it has that feeling to it, that, that feeling where it's the character of history. Eyewitness testimony has got the ring of truth, of authenticity. Now, as we've been looking through the whole book of Mark, chapter 1 all the way to this point, chapter 1 to 14 really focuses in on the disciples and Jesus. But here, from Mark chapter 15 onwards, verse 40, the, 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 it's almost as if the camera is shifting. And we don't see the disciples anymore, and really Jesus isn't really in the picture. It is, it is another group of people who are in the picture. And what unites these people is the fact that they are all eyewitnesses. They are eyewitnesses, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, what is uh, unique about these people? Well, let's look at the Bible and let's see what it says about these people. The first thing is in chapter 15, verse 40, it says, Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is what is unique about these eyewitnesses? Well, the first thing you notice are is that they are women. They are women eyewitnesses. Now, when we think about it, we think, well, what is the big deal, isn't it? Because in the day and age that we live in in Singapore, women have equal standing in a law court as a man. But what happened in, in those days, in Jewish society, women could not testify in court, women could not. Women had a lower uh, standing in terms of the court system. Now, you may know some societies in the world today which that actually happens. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, if a woman were to testify in court, they have a lower standing than if a man testifies in court in some countries. But it is still the case today, isn't it? 
that actually even in our modern society, in some ways, women don't have the same equal standing as men. So anyway, I was reading this uh, interesting section of Life magazine, uh, Life uh, section of newspaper, just last week actually, and there's this very famous actress called Helen Mirren. Have you heard of it? Helen Mirren, she won an Academy Award. And she says that, uh, with all due respect to many brilliant and successful women in this room, really not too much has changed. Hollywood filmmaking that continues to worship the altar, the 18 to 25 year old male, and blah blah blah, right? Something uh, I can't say in church. Okay? And then he said that, and she said that while she, she resented that having witnessed in my life the survival of some very mediocre male actors, and the professional device, demise of some very brilliant female ones. And the whole point is that if Mark wanted to write a fantasy, a, a fictional account where people would believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he wouldn't have put the main witnesses as women. He would have put Joseph of Arimathea, or maybe the disciples, Peter, John, or James. They would be the main witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. But instead, what do we see? We see that as three main women for the main witnesses for the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they are Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. Now, the important thing as well that we see here is that Mark gives us the full names or descriptive names of the main eyewitnesses. Now, I've been to court before, not personally myself because I've been charged for something, but uh, because I've, uh, you know, I've had a friend there or something, when you go to court, when you go to the witness stand, they will always ask you, state your full name. Andrew Ong Chong Jin, or something, right? That's my full name. Because you have to be identified for your eyewitness testimony. And here, it's as if Mark wants us to see the same thing. He wants us to see, okay, Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary Magdalene, apparently, uh, the Magdalene identifies the village where she comes from. So Mark is sort of saying, well, you want to find Mary Magdalene, you go to the village of Magdala. And you look for this person called Mary, have a cup of tea with her, and she will be able to tell you what she saw on that day. Or else, you could go and see Mary, the other Mary, uh, who is the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, or you go and see Salome. And here, as we look at these, just this verse alone, we can see that Mark is not interested in fantasy, or he's not writing a Harry Potter story, right, or a Lord of the Rings, but he is writing a historical account. And he's trying to impress upon the reader that this is really happening. Jesus really died and he rose again. And as we look along the story, we see that Pilate was asked by this guy called Joseph of Arimathea to bring down the body to bury him. And turn with me to verse 44 because here we come to the second eyewitness testimony. So the first one was the three women. But the next principal witness is this person called the centurion. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now, who is this character, this mysterious person called the centurion? Okay? He is not a superhero, right? He's not like the Superman, okay? The centurion, this unknown person, is a person who obviously worked under Pilate, a high-ranking officer. Now, in those days, in the military system in, Ro- in the Roman army, uh, it used to be divided into a legion. 
a legion had 6,000 soldiers. And the legion is divided into 10 cohorts. 10 cohorts of 600 people, right? So 10 times 600 is 6,000, right? So legion divided into 10 cohorts. And each cohort would have about 6 or more centurions. And each centurion would look after 100 people. So imagine our church, right? The size of our church. You'd have one centurion looking after all these fighting people. So the centurion is someone who is seen as having great responsibility. As we look in other parts of the Bible, the centurion was actually someone who was held in quite great respect and honour. But more than that, the centurion was someone who was a professional. A professional when it came to death and dying. Uh, this centurion in particular probably executed hundreds of people. So, for the ancient reader, when it said that Pilate spoke to the centurion, he would be thinking of how we would be thinking when we think of this. Right? CSI. Okay? When we think of CSI, we think of people who are engaged in the business of death. Right? The business of death. These people know how people die, the cause of death, you know, how all the intricacies about death. Lah. And the centurion would be like, exactly like CSI. He would know that the person is dead. And the reason this is important is because, and here we're going into a bit of history, right? Remember, Jesus had hung on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. So how many hours was he hanging on the cross for? Six hours. In six hours, he had died. Now that's a very quick time, apparently, according to people, to die on the cross. Because when you die on the cross, you actually die of uh, asphyxiation because you've got to keep lifting up your chest to breathe. So obviously he didn't have enough strength after six hours he had, you know, given up strength he had basically uh, couldn't breathe anymore and he died. But apparently you could survive up to two, three days on the cross. It was not unknown for people to live up to that time. So Jesus died in six hours and the centurion had to check that he didn't pass out, he didn't faint, he didn't, pass, he didn't black out. And the centurion had to be very, very sure before he brought the body down from the cross. You see, the army is the most unforgiving institution when it comes to making mistakes. Because when you make a mistake in the army, what happens to you? You get caught martial, right? I mean, in a normal working place, if you make a mistake, maybe your boss calls you, you get fired, maybe at school you make a mistake, you fail your exam, but in the army, if you make a mistake, that's a very serious thing. And even more in the ancient world. Because in the Roman army, if you made a mistake, you could die. And we know that even from the Bible. So you look up here. Look up here on this slide. Okay. In Acts chapter 12, verse 8, we know, if you're familiar with your Bible, so what happens here in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter was in jail. And God, through an angel, had released Peter. Now, in the morning, the soldiers had come to look for Peter, and there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search, sorry, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and he ordered them to be executed. Same thing in Acts chapter 16. Paul was in prison, and uh, again, God had released 
uh, Paul. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now, I can imagine shooting your, you know, there are much easier ways of killing yourself, right? You shoot yourself in the head, take a drug, whatever. But imagine getting your own sword and stabbing yourself. But that is the, that is the level of responsibility, right, that the Roman army had at that time. You make a mistake and you are dead. I'm, I'm not sure, it's just like watching um, that movie. What's that movie with Russell Crowe? What? Gladiator, that's right. In Gladiator, right, when they make mistakes, they die, isn't it? Or they're sent to become slaves or something. But in those days, it is very serious in the army to make sure you get it right. So here, in verse 44 and 45, in the ancient world, when it said that centurion checked that Jesus was dead, we know that he was dead. So that was the second witness. Okay, so we got two witnesses so far. The woman, okay, and centurion. But last of all, we have this very strange character called Joseph Arimathea. Now Joseph is actually a very grey person, a very grey person. Because he actually believes, sorry, he actually belongs to the other side. He belongs to the council, he belongs to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin just 24 hours before, had manufactured a death sentence for Jesus. But here, Joseph, he actually asked Pilate to claim the body. Now, that's a very strange thing to do. It's a very brave thing to do. Now, how many of you, right, if uh, somehow uh, I was accused of being a, a, a terrorist, right, or a murderer, or something like that, would actually be photographed of me coming out of the court in the straightest times. I don't see anybody raising their hands. Okay? But, but that's the sort of thing, isn't it? Because, you know, I don't know whether you have any friends or relatives who've actually gone to jail or to been in prison or gone to court or whether you followed them there. But to stand side by side with someone who's convicted of being a terrorist or a murderer or some great crime, which Jesus obviously was, he was convicted of being, you know, a rebel, of treason? I mean, would you actually stand beside him at this point? Well, that's what Joseph did. He asked for his body. And by giving him this burial, he was actually saying, look, I'm sympathetic to this person, right? He would, a lot of eyebrows would be raised. But the point that I think Mark is trying to make here is not so much that Joseph was sympathetic to Jesus. It is that Joseph spent a lot of time with the dead body of Jesus. Okay, now think about it again. Next slide. The time that Jesus died was what? The ninth hour, which is three o'clock. They had to bury the body by sundown, which was about seven o'clock, okay? Three o'clock to seven o'clock was how many hours? Four hours, right? So within those four hours, Joseph would have to ask Pilate to get the body down, Centurion would have checked. So many, many scholars say that. Uh, Joseph had about two or three hours with the body of Jesus. And during that time, he would be able to know if Jesus was really dead, if Jesus was breathing, if he had a heartbeat, if his body was warm, right, if his eyelids were twitching. It's not as if Joseph was with the body of Jesus for five minutes or ten minutes. He was with the body of Jesus for two to three hours. So therefore, 
There is no way that Joseph, and he wouldn't have done it himself, right? Joseph was, uh, probably had some servants. There is no way that they wouldn't have known if Jesus was alive. So the point is, Friday night, 7 o'clock, Jesus is dead. His body is cold, no brain activity, no heartbeat, no breathing. He is lying in a locked tomb. But, fast forward, okay, and you look by chapter 16, the, the, it's almost like the movie fast forwards, right? To Sunday morning. Sunday morning, uh, what happens in verse six, chapter 16, verse 1? Okay, tell me in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they may go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who rolled the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, now again, we need to put ourselves in the picture. Why did the ladies, the three ladies, wait until Sunday morning to go to anoint the body of Jesus? Uh, now, they're not Egyptians, right? They didn't mummify Jesus, you know, like mummy is in wrapping all up. Okay? They actually went to just put some herbs and oils on him so that he wouldn't smell so much. It's a, it's a bit like, a, when, I mean, like when my mother died, and she was sitting in my living room. You know, they, they, they put that, the candle smell so that the body didn't smell. It's the same thing, right? They, they just anoint oil so that the body didn't smell so much. But why did they wait till Sunday morning? Now, again, this is really helpful because you understand what's happening. It gives you understanding of why this is happening, right? You see, when we think of a day, what do we think of? What is one day? What is today? Sunday, right? Okay, what is Sunday, the time of Sunday? From last last night, or sorry, this morning, 12.01 a.m. to tonight, 11.59 p.m., right? That's today, right? Sunday. Oh, that's 24 hours that to us, isn't it? Okay? Now, for the Jew, one day doesn't start at midnight. The day starts when the sun goes down, 7.30 for us, 7 o'clock, whatever. Okay? That's when the day starts. So, Jesus died on Friday, 3 o'clock. That's their Friday. The Sabbath began for them when the sun went down at 7 o'clock. So Sabbath for the Jew began at 7 o'clock Friday night, or 7 something Friday night, till 7 something Saturday. That was Sabbath. And during that time, you couldn't shop, you couldn't buy things, no supermarket, no 7-Eleven, nothing. Okay? So there was no way for the women to buy the herbs and the spices and the oils to go and to anoint the body of Jesus. So they could only buy on Saturday night, earliest. And then Sunday morning they went there to anoint the body of Jesus. That's why it says Jesus says he rises three days later. Because he died on a Friday, Saturday was Sabbath, Sunday started on uh, in the afternoon, uh, I mean at night time, on Saturday night. and So three days later Jesus rose. But what did they find when they went to the tomb? Well, they found this, isn't it? So I'll show you up here in the picture. So this is a, a sample of a tomb. This is not the tomb of Jesus. We don't have that. We, if you go to Israel, you don't have the... You know, there is no tomb of Jesus, right? But this is what a tomb looks like. Okay, for those of you who have been in Israel, you, I know you may see something similar to this. 
Okay, and uh, they lay the body in there. And the next slide. I don't know whether you can see that very well. But there's the tomb in there. And there's this big circular rock. Okay, there's a large circular rock which is beside it. Oh, I don't have my laser pointer. But you can see, right? Can you see that round object there? And what they will do is, you push this round stone into a groove and it will basically close the tomb. Now the problem is that if you can see this picture, but you can imagine it, right? This big, imagine a rock the size of me, except there's a big circle. If you roll me, or this big rock, into a groove on the ground, it is very hard to push it out, isn't it? Especially if you're only three women. I don't think there are any three women here who can push a big rock that way. But you can imagine this big rock that has to be pushed out of the groove. And the women are saying, who's going to move this big rock from us out of this groove so we can go into the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus? But when they got there, the tomb was empty and the rock, the stone had already been moved. And for us, that is the, one of the most powerful witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The, the moving of the stone and the empty tomb. There was a book that I uh, looked at when I was much younger, which is here called Who Moved the Stone? It's a very famous evangelistic book. Uh, it was written in uh, before World War II, I think. It might have even been before World War I, I don't know. But there was this guy who was a journalist, who was a skeptic, who tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And what he said was, the most powerful witness was who moved the stone. Right? In fact, he has a chapter in his book called The Witness of the Great Stone. Right? Because if Jesus had been crucified, and some people say, oh no, he fainted, he blacked out, you know, he was tired, don't know what happened. Even if he woke up cold and shivering in the tomb, how could he move the stone from within the tomb? It is not possible. You've seen how big the stone is in that picture. right? It's not possible to move it from inside. The second thing is, it couldn't be the disciples, because we, as we know, the disciples had all run off. They'd all been discouraged, like Peter. So it's not Jesus, and it's not disciples. And it couldn't be the authorities, because if it was authorities, why wouldn't they just produce the dead body of Jesus, when the disciples said that Jesus had risen from the dead? So here was a, is, a, is one of the most powerful witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb and the stone moved. But that's not all, right? Because it says there in verse 5, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. No, no, white robe, sorry, a white robe, sitting on the right, on the right side, uh, and, um, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, this uh, person in a white robe, um, many people say uh, is an angel. Now, I think it's an angel. Um, because white robe is not a bath, you know those free bathrobes you get when you go to a hotel, right? Okay, that's not what he has in mind. You remember the last time in the book of Mark we saw someone in a white robe? It symbolized a heavenly being, someone who is, you know, has uh, insight to God, is like a messenger from God. See, in Mark chapter 9, 
during the transfiguration, Jesus had been transfigured, and Peter, James, and John were with him, right? And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. So white robe is not just, you know, a toga, but it is actually signifying something supernatural. Here is a supernatural eyewitness to what happened to Jesus. Because how would a normal human being be waiting in the tomb for the for the, the these three ladies? And how would these uh, this a normal human being know exactly what is going to happen to Jesus? It is because this person is an angelic being. This person has heavenly foresight. This person is a messenger from God. And this person actually tells the ladies to remember what Jesus has said before. And this is very important because Jesus had repeatedly said, look, I'm going to do all these things after I'm risen again. And one of them was, he was going to go and meet them at Galilee. When you study the Bible study, you'll see that. So there are two witnesses, the angel and the empty tomb. But last of all, the other witness, I think, is the reaction of the women. The reaction of the women. Look at what it says there in verse 5. Again, the first five says, and they were alarmed. Verse 6 says, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Right? But go and tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. But here, verse 8 is very important. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Four times with four different words, it tells the mood of the women. And what is the mood of the women? Were they happy? Excited? Joyous? Ecstatic? No, they weren't, isn't it? They were afraid. They were alarmed, trembling, bewildered. Now, I want to do an experiment with you. I want you to be afraid right now. Be afraid. Be very afraid. You can't, isn't it? You can't manufacture fear. Fear is something that happens when you're, you're, you're faced with a situation or circumstance which is totally out of your control. Right? That's when you are really afraid. Now, imagine you go to a wake service of a relative or a friend, and there you are at the wake service. You've seen the body in the casket. Then you go to the crematorium Monday, and they want to cremate this person, and they accept. They check the casket, and the body is gone. And not only is the body gone, all of a sudden, an angel in white appears, right? Not one of those helpers pushing the thing, right? An angel of, you know, appears to you in dazzling white, and says to you, your friend or relative has risen from the dead, and he's waiting for you at home. How would you feel? You feel great fear, right? I mean, at least you would feel something. It's not something that happens every day. But that is, that is exactly what the women are feeling. But more than that, I think more than that, see, we, we miss it. We miss this because uh, the, the English is translated differently from what the Greek is, right? But verse 8 ends with, they were afraid. And this word afraid is a very, very 
um, significant word because it is a word that is used many, many times in the book of Mark. See here, if you look up here on the slide, I've highlighted to you where it says afraid, right? Okay? So, Jesus calms the storm in Galilee. He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Same word. Same word, okay? Why are you so afraid? Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in the region of Gerasenes. When they came to Jesus, the, the day there, the townspeople, they saw the man who was possessed by the legion of demons. Remember, he was the one who could break the chains and could fight everybody. Sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Same word. Jesus kept looking. Okay, the, the uh, next slide. It's on there, right? Okay. Remember, Jesus healed the woman bleeding for 12 years. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, fell, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, saying what afraid, told him the whole truth. Uh, next one. Okay. Jesus walked on water. Then they saw him walking on the lake and they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were afraid. See, in every time these people are afraid, when they see the true nature of Jesus. When they see who He really is, that He is God, that He is the Christ, He's got this great power. And I think that's why verse 8 is, is the way that Mark should end. It is actually to tell the reader that fear, this fear of, woman, of the woman, is because they see that Jesus has already risen from the dead. That is something that is real, something that is, is, is powerful. That's why they are so afraid. Now, if you look in your Bibles, um, uh, I think all of your Bibles should have it. There should be a line at the end of verse 8. Look at your Bibles, it's very important, okay? Because many people ask questions, why is there a line there after verse 8? And my Bible says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20. Do you have that in your Bibles? Maybe if you're using an iPhone, it doesn't have it. That's why it's not good to use your iPhone when you're looking for your Bible, right? But, if you look at your Bible, the hard copy ones, huh? Okay. It has that line. And I think that it is, it is the original mark it doesn't have 9 to uh, 20, 20. And I think many scholars agree that uh, the earliest mark doesn't have 9 to 20. I think the earliest mark, uh, 9 to 20, was because somebody wrote in to fill in the details. Because, you know, the ending so abrupt, isn't it? That they were afraid and they left. But I think, um, I'll give you three reasons, three reasons why uh, all the Bibles and most scholars will say that it should end at Mark 8. The first reason is, as it says there, the earliest historical manuscripts that we have don't have Mark chapter 16, verse 9 to 20. It's just not there. It's just not there. The second reason is because the words, the words which are used in chapter 9 to 20, one third of them are not used in the first, in the rest of the book of Mark. That means the vocabulary is different. Okay, it's a very different vocabulary. And that's, I mean, one third of words in, in uh, 9 to 16, or 9 to 20, right? How many verses? Okay, that's like 11 verses. One third of new words in 11 verses is quite significant. 
it shows that a different person wrote it because they're using different vocabulary. But not only that, if you even in the English, when you read 9 to 20, you can see that the style is different from the rest of Mark. It's like, it's like chapter 1 to 16 verse 8 is written by someone who speaks Singaporean English, okay? And then you have 9 to 20, which is someone who speaks like Queen's English. It's like just different. The style is different. Uh, maybe in English it's not so clear, but when you read the Greek, it is clear. So, I think that actually verse 8 is a good ending. I like verse 8 ending because it is very honest. If you want to make up a story, you'll say, oh, you know, the disciples came together and everybody was very happy. They all walked off into the sunset, uh, you know. But here we have the disciples all dispersed. The women, they see what happens, they are scared. There's no one left. But the truth is, Jesus rose and he was dead. And I think that verse 8 leaves you with a very unsettling feeling. Isn't it? Don't you think so? When you read the Bible and you read Mark and you end in verse 8, it leaves you with a very unsettling feeling. It sort of makes you feel like, okay, what happens after this? Now, how do I respond to this? You see, when it ends in verse 8, it is a challenge to us. So actually, being a Christian is not following a moral system. It is not a philosophical concept. It is not a religious idea. It is whether you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Christianity comes down to, isn't it? Verse 8. How do you respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus? That's where Christianity is at ground zero. It is not about morality. It is not about church structures. It is not about philosophical concepts. It is not a religious idea. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all the more so, when you read verse 8, it makes you go back to the rest of Mark and to keep thinking about what Jesus has done and said. Now, I'm not sure whether you've seen this movie. Have you, I'm sure many of you have seen this movie, haven't you? Inception? Have you all seen it? No, you haven't seen it. Uh. Okay, I think you should because it sort of blows your mind or right? messes your mind. It's one of those movies where you actually have to see it a few times. One of my uh, relatives has seen it three times. Still doesn't understand it. Okay? Now, Inception is one of those movies where you watch it, and as you watch the end, then you watch the beginning again, you say, Aha! Now I understand what happens. You know, you have all these aha moments as you're going through, because now you understand the end, you can understand what's happening in between. And I think that that's what it's like when you read the book of Mark, when you become a Christian. That's how I became a Christian. You keep reading the Bible, you keep reading the Bible, and you keep having these aha moments. See, now that you know that Jesus rises on the third day, on the third Jewish day, then you remember, okay, aha, now I remember, do you remember earlier on? Uh, next slide. Jesus, when he was declared the Christ, he said to the disciples, after three days I'll rise again. And then, soon after the transfiguration, next slide, right? After the transfiguration, uh, he wanted to get the, the disciples all calm down and say, okay, calm down guys, okay, you know, heaven's not here yet. What does he tell them? He says, look, after three days, he will rise again. And then again, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, he tells them that he'll be rejected by the, uh, the Jews, right? and then he'll be mocked, and he'll be handed over to the Gentiles, and he'll be killed, and three days later, he will rise. And as you go back to the book of Mark, and you keep reading it over and over again, you, you, you notice how there's a pattern that as Jesus is recognized way, way up north in Capernaum, he tells them, I'm going to rise again in three days after dying. 
Then he goes down to the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum, and he says, I'm going to die, but don't worry, three days later I'm going to rise. And then as he makes his way down to Jericho, he tells him, I'm going to die, but don't worry, three days later I'm going to rise. But they're not listening, right? They're not listening. They can't tie it all together. But after we see Jesus rising, then when we go back, we say, okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's what Jesus is doing. You know, it's that aha moment that Jesus is truly able to see what is going to happen to him. And, and, and it actually does happen. So I like uh, this note, these notes that I was given in theological college. And I want to read you just one section. And actually, when you think about it, this is what it says here, the prophecies of Jesus are being fulfilled. He says, appearances of Jesus to his disciples will follow, but enough evidence has already been given to point to the reality of the resurrection. And actually, if you think about it, the empty tomb would have been enough. Even without the angel, even without the women, if we go back to the words of Jesus, and we put the words of Jesus together with the empty tomb, then the logical conclusion would be Jesus has risen again, just like he said after three days. I always remember the words of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes says, I'll quote this to you, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Okay, And I think that's very true, isn't it? Because when you put all the words of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony, you know, and the empty tomb, what else could it be but Jesus rose from the dead? And again, as you go back to the Bible, as you go back to Mark, it's not just about Jesus rising from the dead and meaning nothing to us, right? Because people often say, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, but so what? So what if Jesus rose from the dead? But then as you go back into the book of Mark, Again, as you keep reading it, the next slide. Oh, okay, no, don't worry about that. Okay, when you go back to the book of Mark in 15, verse 32, as they were crucifying Jesus, in the same way it says, right, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. See, that's an aha moment. Because the crowd was saying, okay, Jesus, if you can come down now, you can save yourself, we will know that you are the Christ. And now what has happened? Jesus has come down from the cross. He is the Christ. See, it's like going back into the book and seeing what was said and seeing what Jesus has done to fulfill what is actually being said. Again, in chapter 12, which uh, was a long way back, we go to chapter 12 here, and this was the parable that Jesus spoke against the Pharisees. And he said that God would send his son. But the, the, the people, the tenants, would see the son and kill the son. Then, what will God do, the owner of the vineyard? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And verse 10 is very key. It says, Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, when we read this, it doesn't make sense without the resurrection of Jesus. See, you can, basically what I'm saying is, uh, I don't have a stone, 
But imagine I have a stone and I, I throw away the stone. I reject the stone. God says, I'm going to take the stone and I'm going to make it the cornerstone of this building. It's going to hold up this whole building. It is, it is the most important stone of the whole building. Now, you can do that with a stone, right? Because you can throw the stone and pick it up. But how can you do that with a person? You can't kill a person and then make them the most important person in that particular structure. And that's why when you first read the parable of the tenants in chapter 12, you think, what is God talking about? Because, yes, you can make a stone that's rejected become the capstone of a building. But how can you make someone who is killed become the most important person or the thing that you know holds everything together? Well, you can. You can make it happen if that person comes back to life. And that's what's happened here, isn't it? The Pharisees have killed Jesus. They've crucified Jesus. But God brings him back to life and says, He is the one who will, who will hold the temple together. He is the one who will judge. He is the one who will be glorified. And see how the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus actually ties in with this section? And last of all, in chapter 10, verse 45, I remember Jesus said, His mission on earth was to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what it says up there, right? To give his life as a ransom for many. But, it is his resurrection which shows that his death was actually effective. His death was actually successful in being a ransom for us. See, we sometimes think, right? I'm not sure whether you think like this, but I thought like this for a long time, that once Jesus dies on the cross, our sins are effectively paid for. It's all done. But actually, somehow, when you look at the New Testament, it is not just His death, but the whole process of His death and resurrection, which gives atonement for our sin. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, If Jesus has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. See, notice what it says there. If Jesus has not been raised, you're still in your sins. The resurrection of Jesus is, is important because it is actually part of the process for us to be set free from our sins. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. That means in a court of law, we are now said to be innocent. We are now not guilty. So in conclusion, okay, in conclusion, the death of Jesus, it's not just about proving that Jesus died, right? But when Jesus dies, it must mean something for us. And what it means as we go back into the book of Mark is that he is someone that you don't mess with because he is the Christ, he is the judge, and he is the Savior. So I was listening to this pastor on the internet, I think he was Australian, or was he British, I'm not sure. And his phrase was, don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with Jesus. You don't mess with someone who can come back from the dead. You don't mess with someone like that. You don't mess with someone who is your judge. You don't mess with someone who is the Christ. You don't mess with God and you don't mess with your Savior. You better make sure that you are on Christ's side and that He is on your side. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then it means that we cannot just ignore Him. right? We cannot live our life as if Jesus is some side uh, issue or some distraction for us, but it must be the main thing. 
When I became a Christian, I was a very reluctant Christian. I didn't want to become a Christian. To me, uh, I felt that I had to give up a lot of things. Right? I felt that if I became a Christian, I had to give up control over the direction of my life. When I became a Christian, I knew I had to give up my cherished sins, and I had a lot of sins, I felt. Uh, I realized that if I became a Christian, I would have to face persecution from relatives. So I had some sleepless nights and I thought, why, why, why do I have to give up all these things and follow Jesus? And the thing that I kept coming back to was the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, then how can you escape Him? How can you escape not giving your life to Him? How can you mess with someone like that? Again, Coming back into the book of Mark, right? Reading over and over again. Remember Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, He called the crowd to Him along with disciples and He said these amazing words, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for Me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, it is really arrogant, these words. Don't you think they're really arrogant? If I said that to you, right, unless you follow me, Andrew Ong, right, you will lose your life. Unless you take up your cross and follow Andrew Ong, right, you will lose your life. Who can say that? I mean, even if, I don't know, anybody who in the world can say that to you. These words are unbelievably arrogant words. But the resurrection of Jesus means that these words make sense. Because if you take up your cross and you give up your life, here is one who can give you life. If you give up your life, here is one who can give you your soul. And here is one who has risen from the dead and will come with his, in his Father's glory, and who can be ashamed of you because he is alive again. So the resurrection of Jesus means that we mustn't mess with Jesus. We must be on his side, and he must be on our side. We have no choice. You might be reluctant, you might not be happy about it, right? you might feel uh, a bit unsettled by it, but the resurrection of Jesus means that we must, we must follow Him. We must give up everything for Him. He has risen from the dead. He will come back to judge. He has promised eternal life. He has said that it is not worth forfeiting your life. and You must keep your soul. So let us this Christmas remember the resurrection of Jesus that it is not just a historical fact, but it must mean something for us. Okay, let's bow our heads as we go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that today as we look again afresh at the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Mark, that we'll be given new and strong faith that Jesus truly died and he truly rose again. Help us to see that as we go back into what we've learned in the book of Mark, that it it makes so much sense. It fulfills so many things. That by His resurrection, He proves once and for all that He is your Son. 
that he proves once and for all that he has paid the price for our sins, and that he proves once and for all that he is the heavenly judge who will return in your glory. And therefore, dear Father, may we pledge anew to follow you and to trust in Jesus and to keep persevering that we will not be overcome by the things of this world, by the distractions, by the materialism, by weariness, by tiredness, but to see that it is all worth it because Jesus rose again and he has promised that for those who follow him there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation, there is eternal life in heaven. And help us, dear Father, to be filled with joy and thankfulness for what you've done for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.